mafia violence had drawn Mark into the role of crime fighter. He did well at the new task, working smoothly and efficiently like the good soldier he had been trained to be. Long talks and conscience-searching followed the destruction of Don Pietro Scarelli's heroin operation. The result was dedication of the three-man team to full-time efforts on behalf of those who could obtain little help from the police and no justice in the permissive courts. Their crusade could not be conducted without some outside help, of course. There was Lieutenant Kelly Patterson of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. He had come into Mark's life as a hunter and remained instead as a friend and silent partner. And there was Dan Griggs, formerly an investigator on Senator Marvin Corvus's staff. Griggs now headed his own special branch at the Justice Department, and was a secret admirer and helper of the penetrator. Through Dan, Mark met and came to love the most lovable Joanna Tabler. An operative on Dan's staff, and every bit as deadly as her boss, the red-headed spitfire was quite obviously taken with the big hunk of a man who seemed able to blast his way through any difficulty and come out on the other end with even more press clippings for his scrapbook, if he kept one. While the penetrator was hunting down the bad apples in the Seattle police barrel, he let another man in on his secret. But that confidence was safe with Zip. A guy who was both mentally and physically tough, Zip had survived a horrible maiming from a landmine in Vietnam with his humor intact to become a successful businessman in Seattle. His past loyalty to Sergeant Mark Harden, his former team leader during their combat days in Southeast Asia, and a bushel of money ensured that the penetrator's identity would remain behind Zip's tightly closed black lips. Lastly, there were Tony Rossi, an old school chum in trouble, and best of all, the joyfully libidinous Angie. It was during the time that Mark was recuperating from the wounds he received in his battle to unmask an imposter in Boston that the professor's phone call and package of information reached him at the Ritz-Carlton. It took him from Angie's loving arms to fire up the engines of a rental beach duke, load his battle gear aboard, and head for the Southland. Cruising at 30,000 feet in the pressurized twin-prop job, he appreciated its advantages over his old Baron. In addition to an autopilot, the Duke had radar, a computerized and digital readout DME and RDF system that nearly allowed the craft to fly itself. Why, if a Vortex station wasn't exactly on his course, all he had to do was dial it over to his true course line and the onboard computer gave him an adjusted continuous countdown in miles to his destination. Just like TWA. He used these modern miracles of aviation to full advantage. In fact, now he was more anxious than ever for delivery of the Duke he had ordered from the factory with special interior modifications. Disturbing notes had sounded from the area of Atlanta, Georgia, back during the time the penetrator was gearing up for his assault on Boston. Unable to handle the intelligence-gathering details himself, he had engaged the services of Frank Murphy, a reputable private investigator in Atlanta. Murphy had been given a contact number in Los Angeles, a tape drop under the John Savage cover name. That telephone listing was known to less than five persons. Still believing that his information was going to an investigative reporter, 
Frank Murphy had called in a final, fateful message. The penetrator listened to it again as the Duke bored holes in the sky across Pennsylvania. As the tape spun, a weak voice, gasping with pain, came on the line. The man on the other end, Frank Murphy, said, "'That thing you asked me to look into, it's more than you thought. Worse, some sort of crime school. I got inside.' looked around, but I got com compromised. They put a few shots in me. I think th they killed me. There was only silence on the line, then the sound of a heavy form sliding down a wall. That was all. The professor's note, included with the other materials, stated that there was no further contact from Murphy.